0: Manufacturing dissent since 1996 This is hell in Texas Being detained in a county jail on a misdemeanor charge Can be a death sentence Those with chronic diseases that need regular medication Can be cut off from that life-giving remedy And detainee complaints over health concerns are often dismissed or ignored By Those working in jails When it comes to mental health issues Issues that may have led to circumstances That led to detention Incarceration is prioritized over those health concerns Which have at times led to the detainee Committing suicide As you might remember was the case With the late Sandra Bland In fact the majority of those who die in jail Are not convicted of a crime They are merely being held on charges On allegations they committed a crime Often unable to afford bail Meanwhile, with jail deaths increasing since 2009, Texas Governor Greg Abbott wants to limit jail releases in overcrowded jails, even during a pandemic, as well as require bail for those alleged to have committed a violent crime, both of which can lead to more detainee deaths in jail. And it's not not like Texas county jails are lacking oversight. They are keenly aware from countless reports of the problems with physical and mental health care in their jails. The real problem is, There is no enforcement, especially by the Texas Rangers, and jailers are rarely, if ever, held accountable for their mistreatment, brutality, and cruelty toward detainees. These are preventable deaths, and they reveal an inhumanity, a systemic cruelty to those arrested. We will try to understand exactly what is happening in Texas county jails in a few when we speak with Michael Barajas, Co-author of the Texas Observer investigation Locked up and left to die In Texas dying in jail Is par for the course Which Michael wrote with Sophie Novak Michael is a staff writer Covering civil rights For the Texas Observer Before joining the Observer He was editor of the San Antonio Current And managing editor of the Houston Press You can follow Michael on Twitter At Michael S. Barajas Find out more about Michael at com, and follow the Texas observer, observer on Twitter at Texas Observer and read the Texas Observer online at TexasObserver.org I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. It's Monday so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess what's new by you? Is it really cold over there when I got here? The furnace was out Uh, the thermostat batteries were dead so there was no heat and I just went over and looked at the thermostat again and again even though I replaced the batteries it doesn't seem to be working so we may have a lot of heat throughout the show or none at all so my apologies anything else new by you?
1: Yeah, it's it, it's cold in here. <laughs> it's real cold in there. You
0: know, there's a space heater outside your door, and you, oh, okay. can, you can plug it in and heat up your room. It'll be a lot better for you.
1: Great. Um, yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm just preparing to be indoors for the next four or five months. So, um, oh, because
0: of winter coming. Yeah, yeah. You don't like winter sports.
1: Um, n- no. I mean, I I'll run regardless, but it's not fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I bet. You know, when you're running in really cold weather, doesn't it sound like somebody's stabbing you in the chest?
1: Um, yeah, it makes getting out of bed very difficult yeah.
0: <laughs> that, See, your whole program of staying in f- good physical shape Huge mistake, my friend So for me, this weekend was just annoying I hate shaving It's time consuming My vision isn't conducive to shaving well Having limited depth perception and being legally blind Makes it so it takes far longer Than it does for those who are sighted to shave it is I hate cutting myself when shaving And an electric razor always makes my skin Feel like it's on fire So I'm constantly growing beards Out out of (laughs) sheer laziness But the problem is maintaining a beard That is not beginning to look a lot Like Christmas can be as Time consuming as shaving With me however I don't only look like A sketchy mall Santa I also look like my late brother who passed away This past February And a lot of people have been coming up to me lately Saying that I look too much like him And it's really creeping them out With family visiting for the holiday soon Including my brother's daughter and her very young grandchildren I decided it was best I either shave it off or actually trim my beard So as not to remind them of my brother's passing while we're trying to celebrate Which all means I spent the weekend trying to figure out how to trim my beard without injuring myself Trying to figure out how to trim my beard while being legally blind And then because I was too afraid to do it myself I had my girlfriend do it for me But more importantly than any of that and my hate-hate relationship with facial hair, Jess, what's this week's question from hell?
1: This week's question from hell is, what job are you not applying for?
0: (laughs) What job are you not applying for? I think that is related to uh, some people on our show who are having issues when it comes to their bottom line. Hey, we pay a living wage, but uh, people only work here a couple hours a week. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is how merchandise you want. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, the coffee mug, the t-shirt, the tote bag, the flash drive of uh, over a couple dozen interviews uh, covering the 21st century The This Is Hell guide to the 21st century in, Featuring a couple dozen interviews from the 2000s And the medical face mask All of that is available right now When you go to thisishell.com And you click on support And again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from L Gets whatever piece of merchandise they want You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth as we do each and every Wednesday. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our conversation about Texas County jails with Michael. Again, the question from Hell is, what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? And I can strongly suggest that you do not apply for any of those jobs that Amazon is currently advertising for on TV. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Jess has this week's Hangover Cure.
1: This week's Hangover Cure is a pineapple hangover smoothie. Emma Dullenmeyer wrote the story Five Recipes That Will Cure Your Hangover in No Time for the Ohio University student newspaper, The Post. Emma tells us, All you need for this simple quick fix is some pineapple, canned or uncanned, which aids in detoxing the body as it is filled with an abundance of vitamin C, a banana for potassium purposes, coconut water, which is rich with electrolytes and ginger to put an end to all vomiting and nausea. Not a fan of pineapple? Fear not. The fruit can easily be substituted with oranges, as the two hold similar nutritional value. Add all ingredients to a blender's cup. You can add ice for a thicker smoothie, blend ingredients for 30 seconds to one minute, serve it right away, drink smoothie as soon as you make it. Voila, your hangover is no longer and now a distant memory. That makes this week's hangover cure, a pineapple hangover smoothie.
0: You know, that's what I have every Sunday morning. My girlfriend makes every Sunday morning. She makes... Basically this, I didn't know it was called a pineapple hangover smoothie, but she adds other stuff like blueberries, and I don't think we put ginger in it, but that's why I decided to have that as this week's hangover cure, because it's actually something that I have every Sunday, and maybe that's why I don't have hangovers, or maybe I have a drinking problem. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell, and if you would like to support our horrible business model, that. Puts you before profits. Subscribe to our bonus weekly podcast at Patreon.com/slash slash, This Is Hell, which streams live at 10 a.m. on Fridays, and is podcast at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell shortly after. That's 10 a.m. Chicago time, and we're in the midst of Central Daylight Time, which is really annoying. On our most recent Patreon podcast, which again streams live every Friday at 10, and is podcast shortly after at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. We shared what would end up being a rough draft of a brief history of This Is Hell. I recently, recently got a request from our correspondent in Brazil, Brian Muir. Who reports for Brazil Wire, Telesur English, and Brazil 24-7 And if you listen to This Is Hell, over the past 6-7 years He's been the person who's been telling the truth about what happened in the Lava Jato affair in Brazil Brian is the guest editor of an upcoming issue of Lumpen Magazine Which has been publishing for over 30 years here in Chicago Find out more at lumpenmagazine.org And pick up print copies at Bridgeport's Co-Prosperity Sphere Brian asked if I would write an 800 1,000 word History of This Is Hell for the issue He will be editing, which I believe Is issue number 139 On Patreon I read what would become only An early draft of a brief history Of This Is Hell, because by the time I sent the final Version to Brian on Saturday afternoon The whole thing completely changed In other words, on our most recent Patreon Podcast, I shared a rough draft Of a brief history of This Is Hell, which is unavailable Anywhere else, and what will Not eventually appear in Lumpen Or anywhere else Because what's appearing in Lumpen Is drastically different We also shared a classic interview That is currently unavailable online Other than on Patreon An interview we did back in 2013 With acclaimed sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild On her then just released book the outsourced self What happens when we pay others to live our lives for us Arlie's writing came up in a conversation last week With Ajay Singh Chowdhury And when we were talking about his Baffler article The extractive circuit and exhausted planet at the end of growth Ajay's piece mentions how Migrants forced to leave their homes by climate change Are ending up as domestic Laborers in wealthy nations Wealthy nations profiting handsomely Off climate change But not yet as adversely affected by global warming with this migration phenomenon increasingly taking place around the world as the planet heats up We thought it was appropriate to remind ourselves of Arlie's work And her concerns over outsourcing our lives in what she calls the personal realm What does it mean when all our dirty work is done for us? What, how does that change who we are? In considering Ajay's writing What might that mean by an increasing class divide between domestic climate-induced migrant labor and their increasingly wealthier employers. You can hear all that, a brief history of This Is Hell and how outsourcing ourselves can affect our personal lives right now by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash How. Tune in every Friday for a new Patreon podcast with a never-before-heard monologue from me and a classic interview currently available, unavailable, anywhere else online. Coming up, dying in Texas county jails. We will also have This Week in Rotten History Some of your answers to this week's question from hell Will tell you who is going to be on the rest of this week's episodes of This Is Hell And again, the question from hell is What job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? You can either email us your answer to this week's question from hell Post your answer at our era Facebook page Or tweet them to us Live from the United States Where the law is far too often the crime This is is hell. For over a decade, deaths of pretrial detainees, those charged with alleged crimes but not yet convicted, have been increasing. Despite oversight, rarely, if ever, is anyone held accountable or responsible for these very avoidable and preventable deaths. Committing a crime that is considered a misdemeanor or a simple probation violation can not only lead to incarceration in Texas County jails, but it can lead to death. And it is not only happening in Texas. Here to help us have a better understanding of what's happening to detainees with physical or mental health care issues in county jails, Michael Barajas is co-author of the Texas Observer investigation, Locked Up and Left to Die in Texas, Dying in Jail is Par for the Course, which Michael wrote with Sophie Novak. Welcome to This is Hell, Michael. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for being on our show. This is... A fascinating article, and as you point out in your article, this is not just happening in Texas, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but I would just want to make sure that people understand we're not talking about an isolated situation. This is happening all around the United States. You start by telling the story of Danny Carrillo, a 27 year old detainee at Nueces. County Jail. On March 5, 2018, according to your reporting, his father, Armando, had visited the jail earlier that day to see his youngest son, who had been incarcerated for three weeks on a probation violation. Danny had sounded increasingly paranoid on the phone leading up to the visit and started crying and cowering when officers escorted him out of his cell. Armando is quoted saying, you could tell he was uh, losing his mind. I've never seen him like that. And you add that jail staff and people incarcerated with Danny said he seemed fine when he entered the lock up, but eventually started spiraling, sobbing day and night, hallucinating and babbling uh, incoherently about threats against his family. How bad can incarceration be for the mental health of those already suffering from mental health issues?
2: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, as Danny's case shows, um, people you know, with a history of mental health um, issues like Danny, or sometimes people even without them are undiagnosed, uh, mental illness. Um, all of that can be triggered by the severe conditions that you encounter, um, when you enter, um, any sort of correctional setting, including a county jail, um, as Danny's case, you know, uh, illustrates, um, people can enter fine and then tailspin, um, either because of the conditions or some mix of the conditions and the lack of treatment or, uh, the way they're, uh, treated by guards. I mean, uh, the, the, the investigation into Danny's ultimate death, um, you know, quoted a number of people who were detained with him talking about how guards seem to have made the situation worse by either taunting him or, or, you know, saying stuff to him that just amped him up. Um, so yeah, these are, these are um, difficult settings anyway, but um, especially if you're dealing with mental illness, uh, especially if it's untreated, um, it, can, um, it can spin out of control, like what happened here.
0: So are, are these triggers intentional? Are, are, are these are purposeful provocations to make people's mental health deteriorate in prison?
2: No, I mean, I think there's something to do with the culture of incarceration that allows for that kind of mindset to persist. Um, I think part of that probably has to do with, you know, these are in general kind of across the board, and this is just isn't in Texas, um, you know, over overcrowded, under, understaffed facilities. So you have jailers that are stressed out and dealing with, you know, sometimes people who are going, you know, are in active psychosis or dealing with people that have severe and serious health conditions. Um, or you know serious behavioral problems because of their untreated mental illness and so these facilities become a pressure cooker so um i think you know people inside these facilities and their family members that are trying to help them on the outside and advocates will often talk about sort of like the callousness of them um i think that's a condition of mass incarceration um i think that's just like an outgrowth of all the strain and pressure that's put on um systems of, of mass incarceration and criminal,
0: criminal punishment. So. And I made the mistake of saying prisons earlier. We're talking about county jails in Texas. So is this issue right. then structural or cultural? Or does the structural part of it, the overcrowding and lack of uh, jailers, lack of jail workers in the facilities, is that the problem? Or does the, does the structure lead to the cultural issues?
2: Yeah, I think you're right there um when you say like the structural issues kind of lead to to what you see, you know, tolerated in the culture of these facilities. Um the the regulations that exist and the sort of like basement floor minimum standards that are on paper for some states like Texas, um you know, they just, they, they do not go, I mean, one, they don't go far enough in really addressing some of the larger issues that we're talking about, you know, whether people are treated with dignity and humanity, especially um, if they are, you know, entering, which is often the case, especially in jails, in sort of like a crisis setting or in a vulnerable place, um, either because of their physical or mental health. Um, yeah, the 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 standards that exist, you know, don't even approach, you know, those sort of concerns anyway and then when you look at the standards themselves um you know the minimum requirements by law in states like texas for how people are supposed to be treated or the conditions under which they're supposed to be held they're just violated all the time they're violated regularly they're violated you know it could be cyclically you know a jail might have an inspection you know you know, once every other year they're found out of compliance, you know, they get a slap on the wrist or it's just, you know, marked by the state jail commission and then follow up investigation or inspection a couple of months later, you know, they pass, And so no big deal yet that, you know, that cycle just perpetuates for years or maybe even decades. So there's just really, you know, there's not a mechanism to even get at the really simple stuff like how, like, you know, how often are people being checked on by jailers, um, let alone the larger sort of cultural issues like just a callous disregard for the people that are in your custody.
0: I want to make sure people understand the circumstances that lead up to Danny's death. As you write, Danny, who had been diagnosed with mental health and substance use disorders, had struggled in recent years, losing a sister and bouncing between lockup and halfway houses. Danny's mother, who recently had brain surgery, had joined his father, Armando, to visit Danny that day, but was detained by officers who uncovered an old theft charge when they screened her to enter. Guards said Danny became belligerent when she was taken away, then later swung at them when they stormed his cell to move him, striking one one officer in the temple and another in the nose three guards then tackled Danny and pinned him to the floor with a fourth uh, struck uh, Danny in his into his back it struck his knee into his back and a fifth shocked him with a stun gun nurses who arrived to check on him about 10 minutes later found him bloodied without a pulse hours later officials released his mom Danny they said was dead so how avoidable how predictable was Danny's death Yeah. I mean,
2: again, avoidable and predictable. You got it spot on. It's, it's, I mean, it's horrific what happened to that family. And and in, in in a, you know, sort of, you know, if you zoom out, I mean, it also kind of shows just how easy it is to get sucked inside of these systems and then how quickly things can just spin out of control inside them once you're in there. I mean, the the charge that Danny's mom ultimately faced, you know, you know, it was, it was old, it was minor. It's, it's not even clear that she, I mean, she resolved it super easily. There's like, I can't, I can't think of a public safety interest for taking her into the jail at that point, especially given all of her health issues. Right. And then you consider what Danny was going through at the jail and how his mental health was deteriorating. And, you know, the guards knew about this. Danny, Danny's dad, Armando, was trying to tell them about it, and so it's just it's it's what you see a lot of times in law enforcement where um, things are just escalated at every step, despite you know um, the obvious tension that creates. And so Danny was freaking out by the time he ended that he ended that that visitation that day. He goes back to his cell. There's testimony from people incarcerated with him and from guards themselves saying he was he was losing it and they even acknowledge like yeah he said something about his his mom being detained like and being worried about his parent um yeah like you said so predictable so
0: predictable and someone suffering from a mental disorder going through the traumatic loss of a loved one commits a probation violation is locked away for three weeks with authorities not allowing a visit by his brain cancer surviving mother when danny is suffering the most does that fall under the category of cruel and unusual punishment? And if it does, why aren't these unconstitutional actions being stopped?
2: I mean, I think part of that goes to like some of these, you know, for really for since since like since the 90s, um, it's just become harder to make um, to make claims against um, correctional facilities and um, to find accountability through the courts, right? Because of, I mean, this gets a little bit into the weeds, but the Prison Litigation, uh, Prison, prison um, Litigation Reform Act that was passed, I think it was 1996, really cracked down on uh, the kinds of claims or how successful, you know, lawsuits would, would be um, against both jails and prisons, you know, local county, city, state, um, just it made it harder to bring these claims It made it less likely lawyers would be successful um It was in the name of you know you hear this a lot in in government when you close acts when you start to, to you know uh, restrict access to to justice in the courts where it's you know it's to it's tort reform or it's gets to take care of for quote unquote frivolous lawsuits um you know and 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 that all kind of happened as a as a reaction to a raft of um lawsuits that started targeting incarcerated um, or that were filed by people that in part incarcerated people to, to make um, conditions better in correctional settings at, at the tail end of the civil rights movement. I mean, like the early, late 60s, early 70s is when you start to see major litigation coming from states like you know, New York, Texas, really all over the country, um, You know, directed at um, fixing you know, squalid conditions, uh, dangerous conditions, violent conditions inside lockups that, you know, unfortunately perpetuate to this day. So, I mean, yeah, long story short, uh, laws have been passed that make taking these claims harder so that people just, you know, um, you know access, access to justice through the courts doesn't happen as often.
0: And you write the Texas Ranger investigation documents together with jail inspection reports, state data or data, court filings and medical records show how Texas's patchwork regulatory system repeatedly fails to ensure safe conditions behind bars. Why does Texas have a patchwork regulatory system? Is that typical around the state around the United States? And what happens when these variety of approaches in county jails are put together into one system?
2: Yeah, I think one one reason Texas has got is a, is a helpful um, case study, um, you know, it has implications uh, beyond state. Uh, T- Texas on paper is actually kind of one of the better states when it comes to jail regulation and oversight. Um, I think Illinois has a similar system from what I recall, where there's like a state jail commission that, you know, is uh, empowered to, you know, inspect uh all these local jails and um supposed supposed to ensure that you know minimum um, minimum standards and state law for for treating caring and monitoring people in these facilities are are being done um th- the reality though is that you know there's very little enforcement the standards are vague and the jail commission here rarely acts um, and um, jails are largely left to their, to their own devices, even though um, there might be a regulatory you know, history on paper that show them failing minimum standards for years if not decades. Um, and, and the jail that we're talking about, the Oasis County Jail where Danny Carrillo was held and where officers killed him, uh, that's, that's right outside Corpus Christi um, on the coast here in Texas. You know, that that jail is very typical from big and small facilities across the state where there's just this um, cycle of noncompliance with minimum standards for years. Um, I think I think part of that uh, gets back to, you know, most county jails and in in and across the country across the country are mostly run by sheriffs they're mostly run by local elected law enforcement officials um and in texas at least you see state regulators really defer to those sheriffs because they're the elected official in the room so um so i mean I, just just to highlight the importance of that office you know and um there is a Another way to influence what conditions might be in those facilities, which is to elect reform sheriffs. And you've seen more of a movement for that in recent years. Like you've seen, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, quote unquote, progressive prosecutors, like in the style of Larry Krasner in Philly, or you have one here in Texas and Austin, there's a um, a reform prosecutor. Um, You know, when it comes to jail conditions, you know, I think that 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 that's a that's a discussion for sort of the reform sheriffs movement
0: so in texas jails then is there is there oversight but no enforcement and when there is discussion of reforms like today in discussions of mm-hmm. reforms is it always about expanding oversight but never addressing enforcement
2: yeah i mean the um the the most recent legislative session that we've had here, where this issue came up, there's um, there's a process where you know state agencies in Texas go go through some sort of review by like a state watchdog agency, and you know the the state jail regulators had their time come up this most recent year, and there was a scathing report put out by the state itself that kind of just echoed a lot of what advocates and civil rights lawyers in the states have been saying for at least the last decade that I've been covering jail conditions in Texas. And it's that um, the jail commission needs to act more than it does. It needs teeth, it needs more money. I mean, it's a, they're, they have a, basically a shoestring where investigators or, or inspectors are expected to, figure out what's going on in flag issues inside, you know, more than 230 county jails spread out across a huge state like Texas. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's unrealistic to think that the system as it exists now would, um, would, um, you know, really be able to affect, you know, widespread change across all of those facilities. Um, so I think there's, um, you know, money comes up in law enforcement. You know, discussions now a lot, especially because of the, um, you know, defund being, you know, a much more prominent part of of debate and uh, and therefore abolition as well. Um, I I think some of that discussion needs to come to light. I I think this highlights how part of that discussion needs to be at the conditions level as well, because while the ideal may be to shrink the size of these facilities um, and to place less of a burden on on them, so that they can actually properly take care for you know more vulnerable people that are inside, or people that judges or society deems need to be locked up for whatever public safety reason. Pretrial there needs to be some serious discussion about what are the conditions that you hold those people in, um, and that might take that might take some. That might take some money I mean if you just look at um, just the regulatory system here in Texas like very little money is being spent on it compared to other state agencies Um, and you know the results are pretty obvious
0: do you think jail conditions then are they the low-hanging fruit in the defund debate and if they are why aren't people focusing on the low-hanging fruit I mean, I think there's a
2: lot of low hanging fruit in the defund debate, to be honest with you. Um, But yeah, I think, um, I mean, shrinking the size of the incarcerated population, like I said before, is kind of, you know, um, ideal. It wouldn't fix the conditions that we're talking about here. But again, it would take some pressure off the system. And this isn't even just in county jails that I'm talking about now. I mean, in prisons across the country, including in Texas, um, they just can't Agencies cannot keep these facilities staffed to levels that would that would ensure proper monitoring and safety. They just um, They can't they haven't been able to they haven't just demonstrated an ability to do that Maybe in part because these are terrible places to work in as well I mean these are not pleasant facilities to work in to be to be sure Um, You know, but uh, There are there are political reasons that have that have um, That have made that a difficult road to go down. Like in Texas and elsewhere, you've seen um, a movement to end wealth-based detention. Cash bail is the reason a majority of people end up being in in jail pretrial. Like a lot of the reason um, that pretrial incarceration has exploded in the country over the past uh, 30, 40 years is a continued or an increased reliance on, you know, Money, wealth, as a determination of whether or not you're locked up. Um, you've seen you've seen civil rights uh, activists and advocates and lawyers and groups like they've made they've made some headway in cities across the country. I'm most familiar with you know the the situation in Houston where um, there's been a, a big movement to end um, or to at least curtail pretty radically pretrial detention and that jail is. That jail has a long track record of of horrific treatment and conditions. Um, uh, But there's been a political backlash here, like there has been across the country. Um, A lot of fear mongering over um, the um, rise in um, murders year over year last year. That has um, here in Texas, I think you mentioned it in one of your in in your intro, um, the 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 governor the state the state legislature here actually passed a law this most recent session that is going to make it more likely that more people are held pretrial. right after the pandemic sort of illustrated why keeping less people in these facilities is, is a public is a is, is necessary for for public health so um yeah the the deep deep depopulating these facilities to some degree would be sort of the the ideal but but there's just yeah political barriers to that unfortunately it seems like in states across the
0: country right now you were talking about how they're not you know jails are not a great place to work the pandemic has led to all sorts of difficulty in hiring employees has the pandemic led to even more difficulty in hiring workers for jails and can that difficulty in hiring people to work in jails lead to even more cruelty
2: yeah, I think um, to answer your question, yes. I mean, and this is in jails and and prisons, and and I know in Texas, I believe this is the case across the country. That um, um, yeah, it's it's hard to keep these facilities staffed, um, and that some of what we document in this investigation, I mean, some of what 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 you see happening are people people being left alone for long periods of time when you know there's every indication that they um, are, are suicidal or might be, and those precautions just aren't taken, um, you know, that, that becomes more and more likely that that happens when facilities are very short staffed, um, uh, people in throes of, you know, medical crises, you know, we, there, we saw cases where people are, um, you know, arrested for drug related crimes and then going through detox and writhing and moaning on the floor and calling for help and staff just doesn't doesn't take it seriously i think it's more likely they don't take stuff like that seriously or they feel the pressure makes it less likely they won't take that stuff seriously if they're super understaffed so yeah there's definitely a link between um staffing levels in, in these facilities and the conditions inside them
0: Yeah, that kind of really shocked me when in your writing you point out that at least 37 of the deaths reviewed by The Observer, the Texas Rangers recorded evidence of jail staff actively dismissing signs of serious deterioration or cries for help. A man who later died of sepsis was accused of faking his pain and just whining by a jailer. In another instance, a nurse quipped that a man dying from a brain bleed was just acting and should get an Oscar. So did you find a sense among jail staff that detainees are... Somehow pampered or display a sense of privilege i I think um,
2: what we saw illustrated in like a lot of these um, investigations that we went through um, into jail deaths uh, that staff might not take it seriously for a number of reasons that could be because um you know, sometimes this is stated explicitly where somebody's complaining of something, and they're like, "Well, you know, people always complain about that, so they're just inured like to the to the sort of crisis and um, you know vulnerable conditions that people come into. You, know, you can see that day after day, shift after shift, and you're just seeing sort of um, people that society would ra- rather not deal with at large. So, law enforcement is is the mechanism you get a lot of people experiencing homelessness a lot of people experiencing mental health crisis a lot of people that are dealing with substance use issues and because there's like you know there are few resources few other places to put I mean sometimes I mean this is not exactly to the the callousness question that you ask but sometimes we would see jail staff that would be frustrated that people in such conditions ended up at their doorstep you know they, they, you know, the jailers themselves would be like, why are, you, why are they even in jail? Um, or they would try to get them. Um, it was obvious that they were like floridly psychotic, and so they're trying to find them a state, like a, a state hospital bed or, or a bed in a local clinic. And those resources just don't exist, or they can't find one, and the delay is so long that somebody ends up dying before they can find a better placement for them. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're dealing with difficult difficult circumstances with few options so um, I don't know again, I don't know how intentional it is I can't like determine intent you know reading from records or you know I can't, I don't know what's in their head but um, I, I imagine those conditions can can lead to um, yeah just the callousness that you that you end up seeing sort of displayed and how and how these people are treated sometimes
0: is the lack of mental health funding on the state level, not just in jails, but overall, is that the the biggest contributing factor to the problems that are happening in jails? Is this a mental health funding issue? Is this a mental health issue that isn't just within jails, but uh, on the state level throughout Texas?
2: Yeah, I mean, part of it is a mental health issue. I mean, you wouldn't have... Um, I, I, there was a really good Houston Chronicle investigation on this recently looking at just the weight list for um state hospital beds so for people that um are in jail more than likely a judge has you know determined that they actually that they they should be treated instead of incarcerated and yet they remain in jail for weeks months um the you know that is a very that is a very obvious you know obvious indicator right that the state has not funded for enough state hospital beds so people are warehoused in local county jails. Um, that has been the case for so. I mean, we quote in our story that's been the case for so long that you have jail, you know, jail regulators that are, you know, complaining about this and trying to highlight it at you know official state meetings, but. Um, You know, instead, what we see at the state level, you know, at the legislature, when it comes to debate over um, issues dealing with jails um, and people in incarceration. Unfortunately, this year, it was like I said, it was mostly fear mongering over um, over uh, crime levels and um, this really disingenuous debate over, um, um, you know, walking more people up inside of inside of jails and there was there was almost no discussion at all about what the condition What the conditions are inside of those facilities that you're sending more people to so um, Yeah, I think the political debate really has to flip before um, Before any of those issues get seriously considered um, at the state level in a state like, Texas
0: unfortunately. So what's a better solution for overcrowding then building more jails building more cells or building more hospitals and having more hospital beds.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's for, I think that is going to be the central question moving forward. Right. It's like, what is the right, what is the right mix? Um, I highlighted how, you know, jails are the um, run by sheriffs and that's the individual sort of like accountability mechanism, I think for a lot of local voters, which is, you know, have a problem with how people are being treated in that facility, you can make that an issue and, you know, your next sheriff's race and try to elect or reform sheriff. I know it's easier said than done, but that's, that's what you started to see um, some communities do. Um, there is, you know, some, there's active debate um, among people that were like in here in, in Austin, for instance, there's um, been an ongoing debate over um, the, Jail, uh, in particularly the county, jail, the, the, the wing for women um, that are incarcerated at the county jail here and an expansion project to spend millions more dollars, potentially basically making that a better facility and people closer to the abolitionist side of the discussion saying, why, why should we be throwing more money at uh, incarceration when we could be spending it on more sobering facilities, um, especially when the data shows that a lot of in particular women, at least here in Texas are ending up in pretrial incarceration because of, um, substance use related issues. Um, whether that money would be better spent funding more rigorous mental health resources and outreach, um, affordable housing programs for people that are experiencing homelessness. I mean, it's, I, I, I think that, um, that whatever that balance ends up being is is for sure going to differ by community. But I think communities have to have that discussion, um, um, with, you know, part of it, part of that discussion is is also also has to be, what are the, what are the conditions for people that we are still sending to jail? Right. And how do we ensure that they're treated humanely and with dignity and respect? Um, I think there are very few communities having that discussion right now, though,
0: unfortunately. Do you think, then, that more mental health clinics mean less crime? And if so, why aren't law and order types about getting more and more mental health clinics into the neighborhoods where crime does proliferate?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that question. I'm not sure. I mean, I think um, the the police police budgets and, you know, Law enforcement have expanded over the decades, um, um, not because there weren't <laughs> better arguments for where that money and resources could go, but because of the political power of of law enforcement um, and how they protect, you know, um, the interests of the people who are in power. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I agree with the premise of your question. I just don't. Um, yeah, I. I. Uh, I I think there's a history of um, conservative law and order types ig- actively ignoring, um, uh, you know, the obvious um, alternatives where um, that could that could better um, ensure public safety. I mean, I think part of it has to do with a like um, just a um, you hear a lot of people in in and progressive and abolitionist circles talk about reimagining what public safety looks like and that might sound kind of um you know general but i think that's really what has to happen on a political level like lack of mental health resources is a public safety issue right um lack of resources for people dealing with substance use that's a, i mean that's a public safety issue especially when you see that um know the amount of harm that's happening in communities because I mean just look at what's happened with overdose deaths and um, over over the past couple of years spiking as well during the pandemic um, that's a public safety issue right and you know one some of the stuff that we that we some of what our investigation shows right is that um, it's not just that these that the systems that we that we have now you know pre, massive pre, pretrial detention um, police, um, putting people in, you know, substance, uh, with substance use issues or or mental health crisis in jail instead of other things. Um, it's that law enforcement actively make the problem worse sometimes, right? Like we, one of the really disturbing, um, things or disturbing to me that we saw throughout investigation after investigation into overdose, um, deaths were, um, you know, somebody who was um, clearly sick in the throes of a potential overdose, they might have even been charged with obstructing evidence because they swallowed something during their arrest to try to get out of being in even more trouble. And yet, you know, um, police take them straight to jail or sometimes even medical personnel like an ambulance or something will be on site and clear them for incarceration and they're left to just die in a jail cell. Um you know, that's an intervention point where somebody could have acted made, uh, to, to save some of these people's lives potentially. Um, instead, um, you know, uh, their condition was actively ignored, if not made, if not made worse, right by the by the by the jail they were put in. So, yeah, there has to be a whole um, whole rethinking of how we even talk about public safety. Like the safety of people inside these facilities is also public safety, right? Like. As COVID illustrated, you know, how um, COVID spread rapidly inside lockups across the country, which implicates public health outside of those facilities among staff, the communities they return to, their families. You know, um, I think the discussion around public safety has to has to include um,
0: has to include these people as well. The sheriff's office hires the people who work in these county jails So clearly when they're trying to do any oversight or investigation It would seem that there would be a conflict of interest You write that others detained near Danny Creo told the the Texas Rangers Who then also investigate after sheriffs do An authority higher than the sheriff's department That jailers berated him before storming his cell And that the guard assigned to the cell block that morning Jesus Galvan had a reputation for being cruel And taunted Danny before he was killed according to interviews Obtained by the Observer Govan faced easy questioning From Texas Ranger Stephen West Toward the end of his interview Gavan told West You know this is my first incident like this The Ranger replied It's par for the course buddy It's to be expected You're gonna face some tough situations sometimes And you add months later Noesis county grand jury cleared everyone involved to you so what explains the affinity between texas rangers and texas jailers what what explains the affinity from prosecutors and texas jailers you would think the prosecutors would be going after the people who committed the crime and in this case would be the jailers what explains this affinity between the texas rangers and seemingly all of justice and texas jailers
2: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about the Texas Rangers role in all of this is, you know, they they have this reputation, which which, you know, is not entirely accurate. Right. But of being, you know, the pinnacle of sort of like law enforcement in Texas. They're the investigators to come that come in to, um, you know, and and investigate, you know, big stuff or hairy cases or cold cases. Um, They The Texas Rangers investigating a ton of jail deaths in Texas, that was actually an outgrowth of the Sandra Bland Act. I mean, um, one of the reforms there after she died in the Texas jail was that um, uh, there would have to be an independent investigation into all jail deaths so that um, the case before was largely that sheriffs could just investigate themselves, which, as you might imagine, doesn't exactly suss out a lot of what actually led to a death or lead to any reforms after that. Um, There's every incentive to just not take that seriously um, so the Rangers started investigating a lot more of these and you know while there's a better paper trail I mean a lot of our investigation leaned on I mean we looked at what the investigator what's what, what these state police investigations essentially were showing inside of hundreds of jail deaths in Texas over the years um, you still see a lot of deference to the local law enforcement officials you still see them sort of take their word for it um, some of these investigations are super thorough. A lot of them are not. And sometimes they're, you know, not thorough in places that have had a lot of really troubling jail deaths or a spike in deaths over the years, like in the Fort Worth area, for instance, um, those, the state police investigations into those deaths are just super thin. And that's troubling because there's been a spike in deaths at that jail in recent years. Um, there is just an effect like it's law enforcement investigating law enforcement um i think in the piece we quote the attorney for sandra bland's family who helped you know get some of these reforms in the state um when they when they sued after her death and the attorney was like uh you know these are not independent investigations no matter what you say like independent would mean bringing somebody who's not you know not associated with local law enforcement who you know has a fresh set of eyes no agenda who's going to follow the information wherever it goes but there's this like brethren in law enforcement so i think i think that's like an issue not just with these jail deaths and not just with the rangers but law enforcement in, in general um to the prosecutor question like one of the more troubling things to me that we that we saw when we were looking at some of these cases were um prosecutors that didn't even take something to like, didn't even take a case or an investigation to a grand jury to like, you know, just, um, got all the eyes and cross all the T's to, to, to have another set of eyes on it. Um, that a lot of jail deaths weren't even, weren't even presented to a grand jury because they said, Oh, you know, natural causes. Well, there's a lot of troubling behavior documented in these reports, um, um, in cases where somebody was, you know, died from natural causes. You know, we, we, we cite a couple cases um, in our story. You know, we talk about them in depth where somebody is complaining about, ha- like literally having heart attacks inside of a jail, thinks he's having heart attacks. is pleading, begging for help, um, saying I'm gonna die in here. He ends up dying. The medical examiner's report says, it looks like he had a heart attack three, you know, set three to set, like about a week or so prior to his death and it was never taken care of. Um, that's a natural causes death, you know, as far as the, um, the system is concerned, but, um, incarceration clearly played a role in that same thing with another guy in the, um, in the story that we cite, you know, who died essentially from untreated
0: diabetes, (laughs) um, you know, Yeah, it's just, it's brutal One of the things you also point out is that uh, Texas lawmakers first established safety standards for jails in the late 1950s But provided no way to enforce them The state health department was tasked with inspections But wasn't funded to do so until more than a decade later At which point it found nearly every Texas jail in violation Still little could be done So was that all intentional To provide a veneer of accountability But allow jails to continue being unaccountable And does the Sandra Bland Act do the same? Is that Is that the political compromise that we are hearing from those who would be on the right, those who would be on the left? And that is the compromises will allow oversight, but without enforcement.
2: I mean, I think the lesson that I take from the Sandra Bland Act in particular is that, you know, um, I think I think reforms are like incremental reforms can be important and they can um, and they can shed I mean, at the very least shed more light on a troubling situation, but they're not, they're not going to be the main fix. They're not going to, I mean, the Sandra Bland Act essentially we wouldn't have been able to do this investigation in the way that we did had the Sander Bland had, had Sandra Bland's death and the movement around it, um, you know, demanding change. If, if they hadn't got some reforms that effectively made the state start investigating these a little bit better than they had been before. There are some States across the country where, You can't even figure out how many people have died in local jails because nobody makes them count it Um, here. We at least had, you know, again, for better or worse, a lot of Texas Rangers investigations, some of which had flaws, but a lot of which just showed, you know, really egregious conditions inside of these jails time and time and time again. you know, we wouldn't have had that without the Sandra Bland Act and some of the reforms that were made there. So there's, there's a lot of other really good things that have come out of that law um, you know, for be- better um, record keeping on traffic stops, which has led some, to some really good reporting on um, um, racial bias and stops and searches by Texas police. Um, but again, those things haven't fixed the problem, though. Like, those reforms did not make jails safer, necessarily. Um in fact, you know the reports that we went through show how how it's not just that so many of them you know have been dangerous at different points in time, but that you know it's very easy for these issues to become cyclical and just never become fully resolved right There might be a lawsuit that leads to a settlement here or there, or they might get you know cited in a state inspection report, but n- nothing that's making these facilities fundamentally change how they treat people um so the reforms are important but um some of the other stuff that we talked about like um what are the local resources for mental health and substance use um issues what you know who's was the local sheriff and what have they promised to the community or has anybody held them accountable for what's happening inside the facility and who's running against them next time or you know how do we even talk about public safety and whose safety do we consider in that debate i think those things are all really important to you. Like the reforms won't do it alone. So,
0: so uh, just two two more questions for you, I promise, Michael. Uh, so, uh, is are the are the bigger issues then uh, large issues that are you know uh, facing all uh, all of us, whether we are in jails or not, and that is. Privatization of jails, or privatization of anything at that for that matter, making them for-profit institutions, and a lack of universal health care. Could could a state could the state reclaiming the jail sector instead of having it run by private businesses? And could the state having universal health care? Would those solve the problems that we're seeing when it comes to cruelty in Texas county jails?
2: Well, to the privatization issue, I mean, certainly there are a lot of private companies that are enmeshed in the you know you know, um, incarceration, industrial complex, if you want to call it that, that, you know, um, profit exorbitantly off of incarcerated people and their families from the people that run the phones to the video chats, to all that stuff, to the commissary, to the, um, but these facilities are, for the most part, I mean, uh, at least in Texas, are are, are mostly publicly run. Um, they um, that's why I bring up the sheriffs, sort of, I keep bringing them up as the, as an accountability mechanism because they're in charge. You know, they're the ones that run these facilities. You see, facilities sometimes get marginally better or worse based on who's in office. So I think that's really important. Um, to what was the second
0: part of your question? Universal healthcare
2: yeah i mean that's why the so sophie who was the other sophie novak is uh, the other reporter that was on this piece who um worked on me with this investigation she mostly covers public health um and that's that's sort of her um um her beat here at the magazine um she and i started working together on this project because there was an obvious connection between the lack of public health infrastructure and the challenges and like crises that um, end up at the doorstep of um, local jails across Texas and really across the country. So there's definitely a link between the two.
0: One last question for you, Michael. We've been speaking with Michael Brahas, co-author of the T- Texas Observer Investigation, Locked Up and Left to Die in Texas, Dying in Jail is par for the Course, which Michael wrote with Sophie Novak. One last question for you, Michael. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Great. So Exactly. So this gives Love us it. the uh, opportunity to mention the most cited... Quotation on our show ever And that is Fyodor Dostoevsky Writing that the degree of civilization In a society can be judged by entering Its prisons What do Texas county jails say about the degree of Civilization in Texas
2: Um Wow (laughs) Um I think blind, blind to what's happening in these facilities, really. Yeah. I think that's, I don't know if you're looking for a one word answer, but I think, yeah, <laughs> I think that's what it shows. The um, yeah. I, I, people that have read our story, for instance, I've had so many people that are like, I had no idea this was happening. But I mean, it's unfortunately um, just tip the iceberg, I think, what's in here. So I think a lot of people, these are really opaque systems. Like they are black boxes that are difficult to peer inside of. And I think that's by design. So I think the conditions that we describe are tolerated because um, of some degree of like, um, you know, blindness
0: on the part of the public. Michael, thank you so much. And by the way, that is the exact correct response to a question from hell. Not saying anything for about 5 seconds to try to gather your thoughts, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being yeah. on our show. And I'm going to look I'm looking forward to reading more of your writing and Sophie's writing in uh, the Texas Observer. Thank you so much for being on our show.
2: Thank you. Really appreciate the discussion. Thanks.
0: All right, take care. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is is hell. If what you just heard from Michael Brajas on the Texas Observer investigation, locked up and left to die, if that made you angry, mad, sad, anxious, or you were in some way reminded that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far.
1: This week's question from hell is, what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? And uh, Thomas J says garbage man on construction site <laughs> um, wow
0: that is a lousy job
1: <laughs> um jeremy t uh every single one that they tell me i should i should shut up and be grateful for you want a litmus test as to whether or not you're getting screwed just listen for the word gratitude <laughs> exactly um krinsky k gospel writer for the church of the crucified trump
0: <laughs> all right
1: <laughs> uh cecily d nurse's aide
0: <laughs> yikes
1: <laughs> um Fabio L. says, Chuck's job. <laughs> <laughs> Don't apply for that one. <laughs> um, what job are you not applying for? Uh, Lisa B., Barnacle Scrubber. <laughs> um, Sloan L. says, All of them. <laughs> um, Laddie O., My Replacement. <laughs> Alright. Um, and the last one for today, Bradley R., loss Prevention Specialist at a grocery store.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that does sound horrible. We will have more. I actually had that job at a department store where you're supposed to bust people for shoplifting, which I did not do. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) we will have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from Mel is what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel? Wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want That is currently available at thisishell.com When you click on support You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell At our Facebook page You can email it to us You can tweet it to us But we must have your answer to this week's question from hell By the end of Wednesday's show It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, globby, gloppy, gory This week in rotten history On November 15th, 1914, 107 years ago Monday, in football's... Oh my God, I think it's the only time that we'll ever mention football on this show. In football's Ohio League, the predecessor of today's NFL, 27-year-old Harry Turner, popular team captain of the Canton Professionals, became the first professional American football player to... Die from injuries received in a game My dad actually went to a Lions-Bears game in the 70s When a wide receiver for the Detroit Lions uh, Was hit by somebody on the Bears guy was named Chuck Hughes And then he died during that game And if you are remembered as the first of something That usually means you're not the last And clearly it wasn't Because Chuck Hughes died sometime in the 70s at Tiger Stadium In the first quarter of the previous day's game Between the Canton Professionals and the Akron Indians Because back then if your team had a racist name Nobody cared In fact it was probably encouraged knowing the NFL Turner playing defense made a tackle on Akron's fullback Joe Collins But instead of hitting Collins with his shoulder Turner slammed into him with his head So hard that his spinal cord was severed by the impact What an idiot After Turner was Carried off the field Canton went on to win the game 6 to nothing. Go professionals The team manager Who was at Turner's hospital bedside The next morning As he lay paralyzed Reported the football hero's last words I know I must go But I'm satisfied Because we won And I'm going to call Turner's coach A liar That those weren't his last words In other football-related news this weekend, the NFL honored the troops with an NFL salute, including an entire line of military-style camouflage NFL gear, which made coaches on the sideline look like they were preparing for a massive duck hunt. Meanwhile, the front page of the Sunday New York Times was reporting the story of how the U.S. military tried to cover up a 2019 bombing in Syria that left 70 innocent civilians dead. And I gotta tell you, NFL, those were not good optics. In Rotten History, November 20th, 1980, 41 years ago, this Saturday, in southern Louisiana, an oil rig team was operating at beautiful Lake Penure, a mile wide freshwater lake no more than 11 feet deep, which drained into the Gulf of Mexico just a few miles south and was a popular fishing spot. But as this is Rotten History, I'm guessing it's not much of a fishing spot anymore. Lake Penure, also partly overlapped a huge underground salt deposit and a salt mine in operation since 1919. So it's been operating for 61 years, which sounds like a perfect setting for an environmental disaster. An old salt mine and an oil rig and shallow lake. Crude oil had recently been discovered close to the salt and now the oil crew was carefully targeting a 14-inch wide drill bit to go down through the shallow lake, missed the salt deposit somehow by a few hundred feet, and hit the oil. But due to a surveying error, the, the drill punctured a work chamber of the salt mine. Holy crap, 1,300 feet underground mine workers were terrified to see lake water suddenly rushing in by a miracle all 55 miners got out of the mine safely and that is a freaking miracle but at ground level the oil rig crew watched in shock as their five million dollar drilling platform sank into the supposedly shallow lake and disappeared As underground salt dissolved in water, the lake floor was collapsing, along with large sections of land along the shore, and the water formed a fast-growing whirlpool, exactly like the draining of a giant bathtub. Trucks, barges, a tugboat, big trees, and even houses were sucked into the whirlpool. Three dogs were killed, and one fisherman in a small boat barely escaped with his life. And as water funneled down into the salt mine with increasing force and pressure... That underground pressure created geysers at ground level, shooting wet, salty air 400 feet high, and it doesn't stop there. Meanwhile, the channel that previously had flowed out of the freshwater lake now reversed its course, so that seawater from the Gulf of Mexico came surging into the rapidly emptying lake basin. This created a temporary waterfall 164 feet high, or 50 meters if you're into that metric thing that lasted for several days until a formerly shallow lake basin was completely refilled with seawater with a section 200 feet or 60 meters deep so that was a so what was a shallow freshwater lake had suddenly become deep and filled with salt water in the disaster's wake lawsuits flew back and forth between the salt company The oil rig firm And nearby property owners But with most of the evidence now inaccessible At the bottom of a permanently closed salt mine The party settled out of court Lake Penure became a body of brackish salt water And its ecosystem was changed forever The salt company went out of business And parts of the remaining salt caverns Are now used for storage of pressurized natural gas I'm sure that'll just go perfectly well that's Rotten History, and this is how Jess, do we have anybody scheduled to be on tomorrow's show yet?
1: We do not. We're working on it.
0: Yeah, oh, damn it. What about on Wednesday?
1: Um, yeah, we have Wednesday scheduled. Um, we'll be speaking with Magdi el Ghazzoli on his Spectre Journal article, Counter-Revolution in Sudan, and A Moment of Truth from Jeff Dorchin.
0: And congratulations to Jess for suggesting this Wednesday's guest, and we actually booked this Wednesday's guest. Congratulations, Jess. Great suggestion. Thanks. Sure. <laughs> Uh so and by the way, how'd you find Spectre Journal? Is it something that you check on a regular basis?
1: Um I don't I was I, I don't even I don't even remember suggesting this
0: this guest to really? be quite, yeah. I think you did. Did I? Maybe it was i oh, no, I'm gonna have to look it up. Let's just congratulate you for it anyway. All right. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. (laughs) Sure. Uh, And we will be having Jeff Dorchin doing a moment of truth on Wednesday, as he does, and as we conclude each and every week of episodes here on This Is Hell. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at dot com. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell Email me Chuck at this dot We are looking for people who can run the board, and it's really easy to run the board, and it's an interesting skill to have. Uh, we're looking for people to run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, twenty two fifty one West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at ten a.m. Monday through Wednesday And a Patreon podcast on Friday However, we are very flexible And if you can only do it a couple of times a month We can work within your schedule This is your opportunity to have access To a professional studio for your own projects as well And we actually do pay our board ops a living wage If you are interested Although that is going to be That's a new thing that just happened If you are interested in becoming a board operator Here on This Is Hell Email me at dot at com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. However, we are also seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely. Stuff that can be done, no matter if you live in London or Laos, you too can be part of This Is Hell, of the This Is Hell crew, wherever you live. For instance, so every time we post a show online at our site. We include a poll quote from the interview to give visitors a little taste of what they can expect when they listen. We haven't been able to keep up with all of the shows that we need to be posting at our website. I mean, they're there, but we don't have the featured bit with the poll quote because it's kind of a lot of work and it's just more stuff for Alex to do. So if you would like to help us in this remote work of getting a poll quote and helping us with posting the show at our site, just contact us at at chuckatthisishell.com. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer here on the show, uh, running the board or doing any remote work, please contact us at at chuckatthisishell.com. Thanks to today's guest, Michael Barajas, co-author of the Texas Observer investigation, Locked Up and Left to Die in Texas, Dying in Jail is Par for the Course, which Michael wrote with Sophie Novak. Thanks to Jess Lipka for running the board today. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is a pineapple hangover smoothie, which... I had no idea it was actually a hangover cure, but I've been drinking one every Sunday morning for years now, and maybe that explains why I never get hangovers, or maybe I'm just a drunk. We told you so. This is hell.
1: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.